and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, it's such a a powerful passage in the book of Romans. Uh, You know I have confessed to you just the inadequacy I to convey the truth of this marvelous text. And I need your Holy Spirit. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds today to hear and understand this great truth, maybe in a way we never have before. And to come to Christ, to come to Him by faith and faith alone. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This particular passage that we're going to look at today has been uh, thought by many to be one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Uh, It is just a marvelous text. There are a few passages of Scripture that pack together so many theological terms in one place. They are things that we need to understand the definitions of some of these words in order to grasp what is meant. Uh, You can see that Paul is kind of straining to try and explain this too. He uses three different metaphors that we're going to talk about here that convey the truth and the power of grace as well. And so I would appreciate your prayers as we go through this, uh, that God would speak to our hearts, each one of us. Martin Luther claimed that this passage is the chief point and the very central place of the epistles and indeed of the whole Bible. That's quite a comment. These 11 verses, this is the heart, not only of the book of Romans, but of the whole Bible. In the same way, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a commentator, wrote that I am convinced after these many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important in the Bible. They are the turning point in the book of Romans and they can be the turning point in our life when we understand grace. Paul has been making his argument. In chapter 1, he said that what he is writing about is the gospel. This is as clear as he can present it. And in chapter 1, in verse 17, he said that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And what Paul does here in chapter 3, verse 21, is he picks up on this gospel and explaining this righteousness that has been revealed to us, a righteousness that comes by faith. 
And in between, He has shown us why we need the Gospel. He's talked about how all of us have sinned, all of us, uh, whether it's the pagan man who does not know anything about Christ, or the natural man who has the law of God in his heart, or that moral man, or whether it is the believer, like the Jewish person in that day who had heard about the law. All of us have sinned. All of us need Christ as our Savior and Lord, and that's what He is presenting here. In the verses just prior, he had said that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. But we see our sin, our iniquity, and we are accountable. We are guilty. And there's nothing we can say in our defense to God. He tells us in verse 20 that therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And so, here God has used the law to reveal how far short we fall of His standards of righteousness. And we come to this point, if no one can achieve salvation by observing the law, then how can God save sinners? How can He redeem us? And how can He still be just in doing that? And this is the answer that Paul gives. And it begins with these words, But now, there is a change that has taken place. And what Paul tells us in this passage of Scripture is very significant. Number one, God has provided a righteousness of His own for us. It is a righteousness that is apart from law. It is a righteousness that we did not earn or deserve. It is the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, that God has provided for us. This righteousness is far greater than anything we could have ever attained on our own by trying to keep the law. It is the righteousness of the perfect Son of God. And there is a term that Paul uses to describe what takes place here. It's a term that actually comes from the court of law in that day. It is justification. And you'll hear this word. Sometimes it's translated in the Scripture here, uh, declared righteous. It's the same root word. To be justified is to be declared righteous. That's one of the meanings. But we're going to see is that this particular word has two sides to it. To be justified on the one side means that we are acquitted or pardoned. Imagine being brought before a judge and you are guilty of a crime and you are brought before him and he hears the case and all the evidence and the testimony against you and then he takes his gavel at the end of it and he pronounces you not guilty. You are acquitted or pardoned by the judge. Forgiven for our sins. That's what happens in justification. That's why some have said that uh, a meaning or a definition of to be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. But that's only half of it. That kind of wipes the the slate clean and we are brought to this point of neutrality, if you will. All our sins are forgiven. We're brought to that point where we are morally neutral, you might say. But justification also deals with the other side. That in justification we are also declared righteous in God's sight. And in this action, He credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
We are clothed with His righteousness so that when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. The term that theologians use for this is imputed righteousness. And again, it is not that we are made righteous. That's another word. That's the whole process of sanctification where God takes us as a redeemed sinner now and He begins to work on our life where we grow in Christ and become more and more like Him. That's the process of sanctification that takes place in this world and is not completed until we get to heaven. But in this action of justification, He declares our sins pardoned And He imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And all of that takes place the moment we believe. When we come to Jesus Christ and we uh, are awakened to that and we understand that we are sinners and we need His grace and forgiveness, and when we come and we turn to Jesus Christ and repent of our sin and ask Him to forgive us and be our Savior and Lord... At that very moment, in the court of heaven, if you will, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. It is done. And that is just so remarkable when you understand that. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There is this great exchange that takes place where God places our sins upon Jesus Christ and He takes the righteousness of His Son and He puts that upon us. That's amazing. I struggle with analogies to try and convey what that is like. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to fathom. It's like taking someone who has been a pauper or someone who has grown up in the slums and the ghettos of the cities of our world and lifting them up and cleaning them up, if you will, lifting them up and bringing them to the king's palace and saying, I want you to live here with me as my son, my daughter. It's changing us from the inside out, removing this guilt of our sin and giving to us this marvelous gift of grace. We sing about that. We're going to sing today at the end of the service the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. And in there, there are these lines that say, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. When you truly understand what that means, that is indeed an amazing gift. Paul tells us that this righteousness from God is available by grace. It is not something that we can earn. It is a gift freely given. That's hard for us to receive sometimes. Hard for us to think about. I mean, we are so used to having to earn everything. It's hard for us to believe that something so amazing can be a gift of grace. Can it really be free? I mean, aren't there some copays, you know, or things like that? I mean, people think about that. They think, you know, there's got to be something I've got to do in this thing to earn this. 
And some people think of it or would rather have it be that, well, maybe my righteousness takes me so far toward God. And then Jesus just fills in the gap, you know, just that remaining part. No, that's not it at all. Our righteousness would not take us anywhere. The Bible tells us that all our righteous deeds and acts are like filthy rags because everything we do is marred by sin. It's only by His grace that we can get this righteousness, the righteousness of God. And that's what's amazing about grace. There's no strings attached. There's no copay. There's no pre-existing conditions that are excluded. It is a gift freely given. And when you understand that, it is indeed overwhelming. It is humbling. It's a gift of love. You know, again, it's hard to try and illustrate that even. All human analogies begin to break down or fail. I was trying to think of things in my life that have been, um, you know, a gift of grace. It's something maybe tangible to try and express. And one of the things I thought about was how a few years ago when you... Uh, gave a gift to Gail and I to be able to go on a trip. And you knew that I'd always wanted to go back to Norway and see family and to see that country where my grandfather had come from. I have those pictures up on a screensaver on my computer at home. And whenever I see those, I still have these memories that come back. And that was such a marvelous gift of grace. I mean, I look back and to be able to uh, stand in a place with a photograph that was about 100 years old on the same spot where my grandfather stood and to see this fjord and to line everything up and the buildings and all of those places that were there was amazing. To talk with relatives that I had never met before and to feel so welcomed and so much at home was again just a gift of grace. And that's, that's how it's going to be when we get to heaven too. I mean, I think to see those that we have loved and long to see again who have gone before us in Christ. And we get there and they welcome us and we are received so warmly. We will understand that all of that too is simply because of His grace. You see, salvation is just the beginning of these things. In Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, God tells us, that He raised us up with Christ and He has seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show us the incomparable riches of His grace expressed to us in His kindness in Christ Jesus. Now think about what He's saying there, that God is going to in the future continue to show us these incomparable riches of His grace. And it's going to take all of eternity to do that. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, salvation is just this first introduction. Coming to know Christ is just the beginning. Being a part of the family of God. Experiencing this change in our heart where we have gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's the beginning. And when we get to heaven... And we see the wonders of His grace displayed age after age after age after age after age. How amazing is His grace. 
Paul tells us this righteousness is only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You see, Jesus, by His sinless life, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He satisfied all of God's demands. And then Jesus, by His death on the cross, paid the debt, the penalty that we owed for our sin. And both of those things were necessary for Christ to do in order to achieve our salvation, to accomplish what was necessary. We needed someone who was without sin who could represent us. We needed someone who was like us, who had walked this way with us. And Jesus did that. And by His life of perfect obedience, He satisfied all the demands of the law that God expected. And when He died on that cross as our substitute for our sins, He paid that penalty in full for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross in John 19.30, He shouted out, It is finished. And those words literally mean it is paid in full. They are the very same words that would be written across a debt that you owed if you were in a Roman prison and there was this bill that listed all the things that you had committed as an offense. That very same word would be written across, it is finished. It's paid in full when you had paid your time. And Paul uses some very important words here, two in particular, to illustrate this truth. One of those words that he uses as an analogy is the word redemption. It means to be set free by paying a ransom. And it was something that came from the slave market in their day and age. In that first century, slaves were treated like merchandise to be bought and sold. Public auctions were common. And the only way that a slave could be set free would either be if the owner just voluntarily decided to set you free... Or if someone would come and be willing to pay the price to purchase your freedom from slavery. And imagine that you were a slave and you had a slave master who was cruel and harsh with you. A slave master who beat you. Who abused you. And you had no freedom. You had no rights. You had no way of redeeming yourself because you don't have any money you cannot pay this penalty. And someone comes along who loves you and who said, I will pay that for you. You see, we were slaves to sin. And Satan was our cruel master. And Jesus purchased our freedom. But the ransom that he paid was paid to God, not to Satan. The debt that was owed was owed to God. But the Bible tells us that's why Jesus came. In Mark 10.45 it says, For the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He is our Redeemer, and that's what that word means. The second word that Paul uses here is this word, sacrifice of atonement. He talks about it in verse 25 when it says that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. In Greek, it's the word hilasterion. It's a word that shows up in another place in Scripture in the Old Testament. 
In fact, that word is used in the Old Testament for the mercy seat, the lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, it is this box, this small box, in which were placed three things. And this goes back to the time of Moses. Inside that Ark of the Covenant was placed a copy of the Ten Commandments, God's law. There was also Aaron's rod, the symbol of God's leadership that he had chosen. And there was a jar of manna that was placed in there, a symbol of God's provision. And then above this Ark of the Covenant was what was called the mercy seat, that cover. And on that cover were also two cherubim, two angels that looked down there. Then those angels represented God's justice and his righteousness. And when those angels looked down upon what was inside that box, the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod and the jar of manna, they saw all the things that reminded them of man's sin. We had broken God's law, we had rejected his leadership, and we were ungrateful for his provision. Man's sin was clearly evident. And when righteousness saw that man was sinful, righteousness had to look away. And when justice saw man's sin, it declared the punishment, the penalty for man's sin was death. And how did God deal with that? Once a year, a high priest would take the blood of an animal's sacrifice and enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And he would bring the blood of this sacrifice as an atonement for his sin and for the sins of the people. Under the Old Covenant, once a year on the Day of Atonement, this high priest would make that offering for our sins and God would overlook them, would pardon them. That's what Paul is writing about when, how under the Old Covenant, because of a sacrifice that was made, that God in His forbearance would leave their sins committed beforehand unpunished. He was awaiting this one sacrifice, the sacrifice of His Son. And what Paul is declaring here is that Jesus is our sacrifice of atonement that is given once for all. We see that spelled out even more clearly in the book of Hebrews in the verses that are included there. It tells us that when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. But Jesus entered into not this earthly tabernacle, but into the heavenly one. And the blood that he brought was not the blood of an animal sacrifice. It was his very own blood as that innocent Lamb of God who paid the penalty for our sins. And because of that one offering, once for all, our sins are covered. The other point of this analogy is that in the Old Covenant, the place of meeting, the place where the people would come to meet with God was there at the mercy seat, at this hilasterion. It was there that God dwelled. He had chosen to dwell among His people in the tabernacle and later in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Now we know that no building could contain God, but that was where He had chosen to meet with His people. And when they came to worship Him, they came to the temple in Jerusalem to meet with God. 
What Paul is saying today is that the place of meeting between God and man today, it's Jesus Christ. And we come to Him. And He is that mercy seat. He's the one that we come to who is the mediator between God and man. And finally, Paul tells us here that this righteousness of God is a gift that is received by faith. It is for all who believe. Faith is the invisible hand that reaches out to receive God's gift. He tells us in verse 22 that this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It is not faith itself that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves. He tells us that there is only one God. There is only one way of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ. And whether someone is a Jew or a Gentile, wherever they live in our world today, there is just one way of coming to God. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And what is faith? Faith is not just head knowledge. It's not just knowing something about God. It's not just mental assent to these things. A nod of the head. No. Faith is placing our life, our confidence, our trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. It is placing the full weight of our confidence in Him. Stuart Briscoe illustrated it this way. He said, When he looked back on his days when he was a Marine, there was a time when he and his fellow Marines were given this assignment. They were dropped into a very desolate, remote part of the world, and they were supposed to make their way on foot 50 miles to another rendezvous point. The problem was that made this very difficult is that they had done a similar journey the day before. They slept out under the hard ground for a number of nights, And they had been brought slowly to the point of physical and mental exhaustion. One of his buddies who was with him was suffering severely from blisters that had developed on his feet and he was having a hard time making a go of it that day. Stuart volunteered to carry his gear and add his pack to his. And he began to make that long journey and they were still being passed by other soldiers going by. And finally it came to the point where this man, even though he had tried to endure the excruciating pain, came to the point where he couldn't go any farther. And Stuart said, it was only then that I was able to pick him up and put him across my shoulders and carry him the rest of the way. Other soldiers took the gear and the packs that they had. But this man had no option but to trust himself to me to do for him what he was incapable of doing for himself. And it was hard for him to humble himself that way. But it was his sole recourse. And it is hard for proud people to admit that there is no other way of justification through self-effort, but it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the good news about this. Because this is the way of salvation, and because it is a gift, we can be saved now, today. We don't have to attain some level of merit or maturity before we can be saved. 
a young child who comes to know Christ can be saved today, or the thief who hung on the cross and confessed his sin to Jesus could be saved immediately because it is a gift received by faith and not something we earn. We sing about that in the hymn, To God Be the Glory, when we sing these words, that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And because it is based on Christ's work and not our own, our salvation is certain. It doesn't depend upon whether you're having a good day or a bad day or whether you did this or didn't do that. Our salvation is based upon what Jesus Christ did. And that is certain. And Jesus said in John chapter 6 that this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all He has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And thirdly, because salvation is a gift, Apart from any merit of our own, all the credit and all the glory goes to God. Paul asks the question, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. There is no one who's going to be boasting before God as to what He has done. You know these words of Scripture from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But would you read them with me together? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is the Gospel. That we are all sinners. We all stand condemned and we all need a Savior. And there is a righteousness from God that has been provided, a righteousness that comes by grace. It is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and it is a gift to be received by faith in Christ alone. Is that what you believe? And is that what you share with others? And have you received God's gift of righteousness by faith in your life? If you have never done so before, I want to ask you to do something today that Maybe a little different than the way we've normally done it. But if you would like to receive God's gift of grace today, and you say, I'm not sure about my salvation, and I want to place my trust in Him today, would you just stand right where you are, and I want to lead in a prayer, and I'm going to have us pray together here at the end. But if you would like to trust in Christ, and you're not sure of that, I'd ask you to just stand where you are, and let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You for this marvelous gift of grace that has been revealed in the Gospel. A way that we can be forgiven and pardoned and be right with You. A way that we can be clothed with the righteousness of Your Son. If you're here today and you're not sure about where you stand with Christ, would you simply in your own heart repeat these words after me? Jesus, I confess to You my sins. And I ask You to forgive me to come into my life and to be my Savior and Lord. I place my trust, my confidence, my hope in You. Thank You for dying on the cross for me. And Jesus, all of us thank You for Your marvelous grace that we are going to sing about now. In Your name we pray. Amen.